Okay, let's finish out with Dr. DeFusco's case. Okay, this is a 65-year-old woman whom I met in September of 06 when she transferred to my care because of a move. I did not treat her originally. She was diagnosed in May of 01 with a 1.7-centimeter invasive ductal and lobular cancer, nucleograde 2, focal LVI, and two of 15 positive nodes. She was treated with a left-modified radical mastectomy and received doxorubicin and cytoxin for four cycles, which completed on September 18, 2001. She was on tamoxifen between October of 01 and April of 04, and then was on anastrozole from April 04 to September of 06. So when I saw her, the question was whether we should continue any hormonal therapy or stop. That was the main reason she was coming. In reviewing her past medical history, she had a history of mitral regurge before she started her chemotherapy, and I do not have an initial ejection fraction. As I said, she completed her chemo on September 18, 2001, and about a year later, when she saw her oncologist, she complained of a little bit of PVCs, had no chest pain, no shortness of breath, no other issues. And she had another echocardiogram done in, this is November of 02, that showed an ejection fraction of 30%. She had mitral valve prolapse with 1 to 2 plus MR and global reduction of LV function. She then went on to have mitral valve repair in cabbage in 2004. Her past medical history was otherwise remarkable for hypothyroidism and osteopenia. When I met her, she had increasing severity of some low back pain, and the day after my consultation, she had already been scheduled to have an MRI that showed a lytic lesion at L1 with soft tissue replacement of the body of L1 involving the pedicles and the posterior elements. We biopsied it. It was metastatic adenocarcinoma consistent with breast primary, ER positive, and HER2 negative. She got treated with radiation therapy. She was seen by one of our neurosurgeons and had vertebroplasty and has been put on fulvestrant and zoledronic acid. Six months after she started these medications, she had a PET scan, which shows no other evidence of active disease. And how's she doing cardiac-wise at this point? Cardiac-wise, she's fine. She gardens. She's perfectly healthy. She has a complete full life. She has one cardiac meds? I believe not, actually. And you mentioned that when you saw her, she had, I think she was just hitting her five-year point on an astrozole. And then I know she recurred, but did you get to make that decision or she had metastatic disease? Really, it was the next, literally the next day she had the MR. But we talked at that point about stopping the anastrozole because she had a full five years of therapy. We were just about at that point opening up the B42 trial, which would have been an option. And had you decided whether you were going to continue it? I wouldn't have continued it off study. I would have offered her the trial. But unfortunately, she actually had metastatic disease. So just an interesting case, and particularly the issue of cardiomyopathy, which has really been on our minds a lot now in the last couple of years. We've seen some data presented. It suggested maybe it's more of a problem than we thought it was. This lady just got four cycles of AC. Right. Although, you know, I guess it's possible that it was not related to that. My favorite statistic from ASCO, incidentally, this year was Sharon Hunt, the cardiologist who presented at ASCO, said that, 5% of cardiac transplants are because of anthracyclines. And 125 people a year, that's not just breast cancer, 125 people a year get heart transplants in the United States because of anthracyclines. Thus, Dr. Slayman's thoughts. But that we can, I'm curious what your thoughts were, Lee, about this in terms of where anthracyclines are heading. We now have you know, some excitement about TC. We have people like Dr. Slayman saying, hey, we don't need anthracyclines, HER2 negative, HER2 positive. Where are you on this? Well, I think what we're seeing, of course, is we're treating, at least right now, more 
people with chemotherapy than we did 10 years ago. And the large majority of those that we're treating actually were probably not destined to relapse. And then some that were, we're preventing relapse. So we have an increasing number of survivors, and now we have to deal with the long-term follow-up of what happens and the complications. So I think one interesting thing to me from the Herceptin trials was if you follow patients carefully, and Slayman did this in his study, looked at ejection fractions, that the patients who got AC dropped their ejection fractions, and they didn't come back up to normal at three years out. So what does that mean 10 years out? And when they get superimposed hypertension, or they get lipid dysfunction, and they have some coronary artery disease or diabetes. So we don't know what's going to happen. So we'd like to avoid any long-term toxicity for patients that might be life-threatening. In the same token, we're also treating patients for less and less benefit, sometimes in the single-digit statistical percentage benefit in terms of survival. So when it gets down to a 1% benefit versus a 1% toxic death rate from cardiac, you're in a tough situation. So I think that all that said in that any regimen that can avoid some of those things would be preferable. If we can get away from anthracyclines in the future, I think it would be a good thing. Andy, what about oncotype and node positive tumors? So this lady had two positive nodes originally. Now we're starting to see some data coming out of some at ASCO. Do you think that this is going to play out? Lori Goldstein presented at a poster session the first application of the oncotype DX assay in any patients with node positive disease in the setting of the ECOG 2197 trial, which compared doxorubicin cyclophosphamide to doxorubicin docetaxel. And what she really showed there was that the oncotype test showed that a low recurrence score in chemotherapy-treated patients identified a group of patients who did exceedingly well. Their recurrence-free survival was in excess of 95%, even if they had one, two, or even three positive nodes. So we might think about using this oncotype recurrence score for chemotherapy trials as a way to stratify people for different regimens, in a sense. And I don't think we should be using this at the current time to decide on whether or not to use chemotherapy in the node-positive patient. But clearly, gene profiling may give us more useful information than simply counting nodes, at least going from one to two to three nodes. You know, I mean, you wonder, in retrospect, this lady got AC, but she didn't get a tax saying, you know, could we have predicted that she would be a patient with two positive nodes who was going to get into trouble? What was it like to deal with metastatic disease in this woman at a personal level? In five years after diagnosis, she's thinking we're going to switch or stop the AI or not. And now, boom, next day she's got metastatic breast cancer. What was that like? It was pretty hard. I mean, she was pretty devastated. And it was even harder because I just met her. So I had no real relationship with her over this period of time. I knew her oncologist who had previously treated her. And so we were talking. And I think she was happy that we had that connection going and that he was aware and agreeable with what our plan was. What was her life situation? She is retired. Her husband has actually a post-polio syndrome, but walks and is functional, but still has some limitations. She's pretty active gardening and traveling. And, you know, I think going through the vertebroplasty, going through the radiation was really difficult. She had a lot of problems with that. But once her pain was resolved, and I just saw her this week, and she's totally pain-free and fully functional and feels like she's got a new lease on life. I imagine that at some point she might have thought, am I ever going to feel good again? I think so. I think so. And when I first met her, she really underestimated the level of pain that she had. And then when we got the report back and I saw her back, it was more apparent how much pain she was having. But I think she's really looking forward to this being an anniversary. She actually had a party set up with all her friends and was going to go celebrate coming off hormonal therapy at that five-year point. Wow. And then all of a sudden her life has changed. 
And now, do you think that the fulvestrin is having an effect? Can you tell? I mean, she got radiation therapy, she had surgery. Well, she has no other evidence of disease that's shown up by PET scan. And so I'm always a little unclear of how often to repeat these. You know, do I wait for symptomatic disease? Do we repeat this and look for something else? And I think right now we've decided that we'd repeat another PET scan at least six months after the one we just did, which will be at the end of the year, and see where she is. Because she really had oligometastatic disease. So, And whether she's going to continue to benefit from hormones. I mean, having failed in the face of the anastrozole makes me a little concerned about what her long-term course is going to be. Do you follow these patients with tumor markers and or circulating tumor cells? I don't do tumor markers. I just haven't found them to be all that useful. I have a group of people that I have followed with tumor markers with metastatic disease, and we usually run into a situation where they're asymptomatic, their marker's going up a little, and their PET scans or their other scanning stable. So I have two out of three things saying don't change gears and one that says change gears. And honestly, I haven't used the circulating tumor cell assay again yet because I know this lady is not going to be somebody that I can treat for cure. I want to maintain her quality of life as optimally as I can for as long as I can. And so I'm still trying to decide where that fits into practice. Final comment from Lee and Andy. Do you use tumor markers to follow people like this? Lee? I do. I'm a believer in tumor markers. I also use them in screening for patients after they complete adjuvant therapy. In general, I agree. Sometimes their results are in the opposite direction, and I think you have to use clinical judgment there. I tend to, particularly though in bone metastases in the past, I've found them generally useful And we've just initiated the analysis of CTC. I don't have any experience with it yet, but I think it may be particularly appropriate in patients that have bone-only disease that it's hard to follow, even though PET scan, I think, is an advance there. For example, in your patient, if her CTCs went up, I might consider switch, even if she was totally asymptomatic, switch to a different hormonal agent at that point. So it might trigger a treatment decision. Andy, CTC or tumor markers in people like this? I have not used circulating tumor cells in management. I do use tumor markers, and I use them, obviously, in addition to history, physical, and radiographic evaluation of the patient. There are situations where there is discordance between the direction of the markers and the radiographic evaluation. One particular scenario relates to the patient who has predominantly bone or bone-only disease, and there I would issue an a note of caution in that there is a fair amount of data suggesting that bone scans as well as PET scans can be affected by the use of bisphosphonates. And there was a session at ASCO two years ago on the use of PET scan in managing metastatic solid tumors. So occasionally a PET scan can become more avid in bone, not reflecting disease progression, but some interaction between bone and bisphosphonate use.